Well, you guys can turn to the book of Psalm. Next week, we're going to start a new series on the final week of Jesus's life. But today, we're going to look at Psalm 32. So you can turn there. It's right about the middle of your Bible, Psalm 32. This is what we call a psalm of thanksgiving. It's very common in the book of Psalms for the author, like David in this case, to write a psalm that's really a song, and it's a song about his thanks to God, for God delivering him in some way, and he's inviting us to sing about God's deliverance. And so that's what this is. It's actually very similar to the songs you just sang. This is how Israel would have sung about God's goodness. So Psalm 32 David says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way in which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. The, the key word of this psalm is found right at the beginning. It's actually the first word in the Hebrew text. It's repeated twice in verses 1 and 2. It's the word blessed. That's a very common word actually through the whole book of Psalms. Blessed is a significant biblical word that's often misunderstood today because it's been picked up by pop culture. And now hashtag blessed means pretty much anything good going on in your life. So hashtag blessed, I just took a nice vacation. Blessed, I found a nice outfit on sale. Blessed, I had a nice dinner with my friends. It just means any kind of pleasant circumstances. But that's not actually the biblical definition of blessed. Biblically, blessed doesn't really have anything to do with your circumstances. Blessed is about your position before God. To be blessed means you are in God's favor. God is blessing you with his peace and joy and in your heart. That's kind of the root idea of a blessed life. A blessed life in the Bible is a life full of God's peace and joy and love. And so this psalm is all about how we can experience the blessed life regardless of circumstances. So even when we don't have that great vacation, that outfit, that dinner with friends, we can still experience God's blessing and David wants us to know how. So how do you live the blessed life regardless of circumstances? That's the point of Psalm 32. David talks about that idea in a lot of his psalms. That's actually where the entire 
book of Psalms begins. And so here is the first verse of the entire book of Psalms, chapter 1, verse 1. How blessed, key word again, how blessed is the one who does not follow the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the assembly of scoffers. I I like to think of this particular verse as what we might call the ideal path to blessing. David tells us, if you want to experience God's blessing in your life, just obey. Don't give in to sin. That's kind of like the the Google Maps route to blessing, the shortest possible route. Just never sin. Just walk in obedience and you will be blessed. So if we were to map this out, again, Google Maps idea, this is what Psalm 1 would look like. That's how you live the blessed life. Just obey. Don't give in to sin and you will enjoy God's peace and his joy and his love in your life. You will be blessed. This is kind of like the preventative medicine that your doctor gives you when you are healthy. So your doctor always has advice, even if you're not sick. He or she is going to have advice for you. So he's going to tell you when you're healthy. Well, to stay healthy, you need to, you need to keep exercising three times a week, and you need to eat lots of fiber and have an aspirin every day, and you need to not smoke. And he's going to give you all this good advice, and it's really good advice. That good advice can keep you healthy for a long time. Prevention really is best, whether we're talking about in medicine, or spiritually. You want to prevent all of the pain. There's just one problem with preventative medicine. I live in a fallen body. So no matter how often I exercise and eat fiber and take an aspirin, my body is going to break down. My body is going to get sick. So it is in the spiritual life. I am still a sinner who will sin. I'm I'm going to give in to sin at some point. That is actually explicitly stated in the book of 1 John, which I'm going to take us to a lot this morning. So here's 1 John 1.8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. This is written to believers. Even as a believer, I'm going to struggle with sin. That, That was proven to me when I had kids. Actually, if you've, if you've had kids, you know this. So I had been walking with the Lord for decades by the time that Luke and Gracie came along. And I felt like I had matured greatly in life, like I'd won a lot of victory over sin. And then we had kids and I discovered just how selfish and prideful and angry I still was. I still struggle with sin. I'm still a sinner who will still sin. And so when we go back to that map of what life looks like, the ideal life life is often interrupted by a fall into sin. We are all going to sin. And when we sin, we fall off that ideal path to blessing, that shortest possible route to the life of blessing God wants for us. Our sin causes us to fall off that path, and our sin is a big deal. It's, it's serious. And, and so back to 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. This is the message that we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. This metaphor of God is light, what it means is that God is absolutely pure. 
He never sins. He never compromises with evil. He is, in fact, so pure that he cannot ever welcome sin into his presence. We're told in Psalm chapter 5, you are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you, the wicked cannot dwell. And so when we give in to sin, we are removing ourselves from the presence of God. We're separating ourselves from him. We're distancing ourselves from him. And we're falling off that path of blessing. That ideal path that takes us to God's blessing. We fall off it when we sin. Now, it's important at this point to really clearly distinguish between what it means to have a relationship with God and what it means to have fellowship with God. So let me just make absolutely sure that you're clear on this. Really, really important. Having a relationship with God is not something that you earn. It's something that you receive for free the moment that you trust in Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel. So we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of God's glory. But God offers to us eternal life as a free gift. Jesus took our sins upon himself. He died in our place and rose from the dead. So that we could have eternal life as a free gift. So that he could bring us back to God and reconcile us to God. So Romans 5 10 for if when we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life Jesus's death reconciled you to the father okay it created a relationship between you and God the father he is your father you are his child and you can never lose that nothing can take that away and all that was required for you to receive that eternal relationship with God is just faith Galatians chapter 3 verse 26 you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus the moment you trusted in Jesus you became a child of God and you can never lose that As sure as you will always be a son or daughter of your biological parents, so you will also always be a son or daughter of God if you have trusted in Jesus. You can never lose that relationship. Okay, so let's keep that clear. Relationship with God. It is eternal. It is a free gift you receive at the moment you trust in Jesus. If, if you don't yet have a relationship with God, or if you don't know if you have a relationship with God, I would encourage you, please come talk to me or someone else here this morning. That's incredibly important for you to know that you have that eternal relationship with God through Jesus. We'd love to talk with you about that and share that free gift with you. Okay, so a relationship with God, you get that for free the moment you trust in Jesus. You can never lose that. Sin doesn't cost you that. But that is not what Psalm 32 is about. Psalm 32 and 1 John 1 are about fellowship with God. It's about enjoying God's presence in your life. If, if you are a believer, if you've trusted in Jesus and yet you choose to sin, you don't lose your relationship with God, but you do lose fellowship with God. You lose your closeness to him. You lose your experience of his peace and joy and love in your life. Easiest way to illustrate this, it is like a, a really good dad who has a rebellious son. Well, no matter how rebellious that son is, 
He will always be the son of his dad. That can't change. However, as long as that son continues in rebellion, it's going to be kind of uncomfortable around the dinner table, right? He and his dad aren't going to be going on fun fishing trips together. They're not going to be going and watching movies together because the rebellion of that son is causing separation. They're not in fellowship with one another. They're estranged from one another. That's what rebellion does. Well, so it is in the spiritual life. If you are a child of God through faith in Jesus, then when you sin, it doesn't cost you your relationship. You're still forever a child of God, but it does bring estrangement in the relationship. It brings a feeling of separation. You're not enjoying God's joy and and peace in your life. Instead, it feels like there's distance between you. You're not enjoying your time with him because of your sin. That's what sin costs us in this life. It it separates us from God, not in an eternal sense, but in in the sense of experiencing his joy and peace in our lives. So let's go back to our diagram. The ideal life of blessing is simply to obey. Always obey and you will be blessed. But we all struggle with sin and when we do, we fall off that path of blessing. Again, not losing our relationship with God, but losing our fellowship with God. So the question is, once you've fallen off the path, how do you get back? Okay, this is restorative medicine. If Psalm 1 was preventative medicine, Psalm 32 is restorative medicine. Once you have sinned and fallen off the path of God's blessing in your life, how do you get back onto the path as quickly as possible? And so in Psalm 32, David has told us the answer to that question. He tells us that when a believer sins, we face a choice between two options. So option number one, when we have sinned, is we can hide it. We can deny it. We can excuse it. That is what David did for a while. He talks about a time in his life when he committed some sin and then he chose to hide it or deny it and not not acknowledge it. We don't know what sin it was exactly. He does not identify it. We know it was a serious sin that he hid for a while. That fits really well, David's sin with Bathsheba. That may be what he's talking about here. So just in case you don't know that story, David committed adultery with a married woman named Bathsheba. And when she got pregnant with David's child, David had her husband murdered. So really big sin. And he hid it as best we can tell for about a year. He tried to hide it. Why did he try to hide it? We don't know. Was he embarrassed? Maybe. Was he afraid that God would catch him? Maybe. Maybe it was more sinister. Maybe he thought as king he deserved it. Maybe he thought, well, this is okay because I run this country. I, I don't know why he hid it. I just know that he did hide it. And what he's telling us in Psalm 32 is even as king, when he tried to hide his sin, the result was sorrow. That is always the result that comes when a believer hides sin. That's verse 10. So David is telling us the person who who walks in wickedness, who lives with this sin in his or her life, the result is always sorrow. It brings pain. And and David, in in verses 3 and 4, look again at verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away 
Literally in Hebrew, his bones became brittle. It felt like his body was disintegrating. He's describing intense agony. He felt incredible pain for that year as he hid his sin. Now, did he get physically ill? Maybe. Was he overcome with anxiety? Maybe. Is he simply talking about spiritual pain? Maybe. We don't know the mechanics of what was going on in David. What we do know is that so long as he tried to hide and excuse his sin... It resulted in incredible sorrow in his life, incredible pain. Most of us have have lived long enough to have seen that reality. It's really easy to prove biblically. There's lots of examples of that in the Bible. I'll give you just one other than David, a guy named Achan. In Joshua chapter 7, the Israelites were commanded to wipe out the city of Jericho. God said, don't take any of the treasure for yourself. Wipe it all out. But Achan sinned. Achan went in and he took some of the gold and silver and fine cloth for himself and he hid it in the tent. He didn't tell anybody about it. Some time passes and then Israel goes up against the next city. A much smaller city should have been an easy victory, but they lose and lots of Israelites die. And and their commander, Joshua, he goes before the Lord in agony. Why, God, have you abandoned us? Why did you let us die? And God says, well, it's because one of you sinned. One of you broke my commands. And then Joshua cast die to see who, who is it. And, and the die identifies Achan and finally found out. Achan says, oh, well, yes, okay. He brings out the spoil, but it's too late. And so Joshua, at God's command, puts Achan and his whole family to death. And the point of all that is to show that by choosing to hide his sin, Achan brought sorrow to himself, to his family, and to the whole nation of Israel. Hiding sin always brings sorrow. That's actually like the main point of a lot of the most famous English literature that you probably read as a high schooler. A lot of those books that you had to read in high school or college were about the pain that comes from trying to hide evil in your life. So think about the Scarlet Letter. It's, it's about both a woman and a man who committed adultery. And in that book, the man hides his sin and it ends up taking his life. The anxiety kills him. Or you have Poe's The Telltale Heart. Remember the story? So a brutal murder is committed. It's, it's the perfect murder. It seems like he's gotten away with it. What gives him away? It's his own beating heart. It's his own anxiety that gives him away. Or Crime and Punishment. Really long book, but really worthwhile read. It's incredible. It's a story about, again, a a, a brutal murder that the guy could have gotten away with. The main character really could have gotten away with it. But the anxiety so tears him up that when he is finally caught and imprisoned, he actually feels relief. Even people in our broader world know that when you try to hide or deny or excuse evil in your life, it always results in sorrow. It always makes things worse. It always takes you farther and farther from the path of blessing in your life. So you hide it and things go badly. Fortunately, there's a second option. The second option is to confess your sin to God. That's what David talks about in verse 5. So after this long period of time, if it's the Bathsheba incident, after about a year of trying to hide it, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So verse 5 is the exact opposite 
of what David tried to do first. He's no longer trying to hide his sin. He's acknowledging it to God. He's confessing it to God. Now, it's interesting to think about this. God is omniscient. He knows all things. So the point of acknowledging your sin to God is not really about God. God already knows it. He's not surprised by it. It's really about you. This is about the moment when David decided, I'm no longer going to excuse this. No longer going to deny it. No longer going to try to hide it. I'm going to be open and honest about it. I'm going to agree with God about this sin. And that's really what confession means. If you want a simple definition, what does it mean to confess your sin? It means you agree with God about your sin. You agree with him that you did it, that it was inexcusable, that it was wrong, that it was serious. You're just agreeing with God about your sin. So just to clarify, saying to God, yeah, I did it, but it's no big deal. Everybody's doing it. That's not confession. Okay? To confess is to say, I did it and it is a big deal. I regret it. It's wrong. That's confession. You grieve your sin just like God grieves your sin. You agree with him that this was inexcusable and serious. Okay, on the flip side though, and this is important to clarify, confession also does not mean a commitment to never commit that sin again. You cannot make that promise because we're still sinners. So for me, I, I do struggle with impatience and anger towards my kids. Sometimes I blow up. And, and when I blow up at my kids and then I confess it to God, if confession meant I also had to commit to never do that again, then invariably the next time I get impatient and blow up at my kids, no longer would I be, no, not only would I be guilty of anger, but I'd also be a liar. That's not what confession is. You, you can't promise to never commit sin again. Confession is simply agreeing with God. What I did was wrong. It's serious. There's no excuse for it. Please forgive me for it. That's what confession looks like. So you're acknowledging your sin. You're agreeing with God. And, and once you confess, what's the result? Well, the choice to hide our sin, it brought sorrow. What about the opposite choice? To confess our sin, that brings forgiveness. That brings restoration. That's what we saw at the end of verse 5. You forgave the guilt of my sin. The moment that David confesses his sin, God wipes it away. God forgives it. That same point is made in the book of 1 John chapter 1 again. Now verse 9. Very famous verse. You've probably heard it before. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The moment we confess, God cleanses us. He forgives us of all our sin. Now this brings up a, a good question. Some of you may be wondering. Wait a minute, Blake, I thought the moment that I trusted in Jesus as my Savior, all of my sins, past, present, and future, were forgiven, right? So why do I need forgiveness again? Well, it takes us back to the distinction between a relationship with God and fellowship with God. The moment that you trusted in Jesus, God really did forgive you the penalty of all of your sins, past, present, and future. You will never face the wrath of God for any of your sin if you've trusted in Jesus. However, this forgiveness isn't about that. This forgiveness is about restoring us to fellowship with God. It's about removing that barrier between us and God's blessing that our sins created. I like to imagine it this way. Imagine you're already in the family of God. You're already a child of God. But as a believer, every time you give in to sin, you are building a cinder block wall between you and God. 
So every time you put that, that, commit that sin, you're putting another block in the wall, another block in the wall. You're still in God's family, but you're creating this cinder block wall between you and God that cuts you off from enjoying fellowship with God and the blessing of God in your life. And then you confess your sin, and what does God do? He takes out his sledgehammer, and he breaks down the wall. Now the wall is gone, and you are back into this fellowship, into this presence, into this joy and blessing of God. Okay, so when we confess our sins, God immediately wipes down that wall and welcomes us back into his presence. Confession restores us to that path of blessing. Now, after kind of laying this out for us, David gives us a a metaphor, a picture of these two options, either hiding your sin or confessing your sin. Look at verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. What David is is talking about here, what, what he's helping us to understand is that when we as believers commit sin, it's like a flood of water rushing towards a dam. As that flood of water rushes upon the dam, the operator of that dam has a choice. Between two options. Option number one, he recognizes there's a flood of water coming. I better open up the floodgates. I better let out the water. That's confession. You're letting it out. You're confessing it to God. If you open up the floodgates and the the water level descends, the pressure is reduced, the dam is saved. But if the operator, there's the floodgates. If the operator instead does not acknowledge the flood that's coming, keeps the floodgates closed, and eventually that water level is just going to keep rising and rising and rising until it breaches the dam and destroys the dam and destruction comes into that person's lives. Many lives are lost. Well, so it is with sin in our lives. If we will admit it, the pressure will go down. We'll be restored with God. We'll continue to enjoy his blessing. If we try to hide it and keep it behind the dam, it will keep building up until it destroys us, until it creates great sorrow in our lives. So David wants us to understand. Confessing our sin can restore us to that path of blessing. But as we think about restoration, it's important to pause for a moment and clarify. I've noticed a, a couple really common errors when we think about how confession and restoration works in our lives. Some believers make too much of confession and restoration. Some believers make too little of confession and restoration. Let me explain this. What does it mean to make too much of of restoration and forgiveness in our lives? Well, some believers assume that if I confess my sins to God, it wipes out all consequences of my sin. If I've sinned, all I have to do is confess and then God will take away all of the consequences in my life of that sin. Most of us in this room are old enough to know that's not the case, right? (laughs) We know it doesn't work that way. You can confess your sin to God, but sin has consequences and you can't get out of some of them. Some of them are going to be in your life whether you confess or not. And so this error needs to understand confession doesn't remove all the consequences of your sin. It removes that barrier between you and God, but there is still natural consequences that come as a result of sin that you can't simply get out of. I like to remind myself, if Psalm 32 is about David and Bathsheba, then after David had confessed his sin to God, what happened? Well, the child he and Bathsheba had died. And then chaos erupted in David's family for decades. And here we are, 3,500 years later, still.
still talking about his shameful deeds. Those are some pretty massive consequences. And so confession brings genuine forgiveness and restoration, but it does not remove all consequences. I think David would be rolling over in his grave if he ever heard someone use Psalm 32 as an excuse for sin. Well, I can go live it up in sin and then confess the next morning and we're all good. No, you are restored in fellowship to God, but there are consequences that your sin unleashes in your life and in the lives of those you love and you don't get out of those. So never use Psalm 32 as an excuse for sin. Sin is not some pet that you can enjoy and then just confess and everything is good. Sin is a monster that wants to consume you. If you give into it, God will forgive you, but you will pay a price because that's how sin works. So we have to avoid that error on one side, making too little of sin and too much of, of what forgiveness and restoration brings. It does not deliver you from all the consequences of sin. But we also have to avoid the opposite error, which is including too little in the concept of confession and restoration. This is the side of the spectrum that I have erred in in most of my life. So for most of my life, when I sinned and, and confessed my sin to God, I still felt like God didn't like me very much. I still felt that like for a while, I needed to like be on probation and kind of earn my way back into God's um, friendship. And, and so as I kind of think about, so what was God to me? We kind of all have mental images of God. They're really characters because no image can do justice to God. But the character of God that I had for a lot of my life was this guy, a hockey referee. So if you're playing hockey and you commit a foul, what does this guy do? Well, he blows a really loud whistle and then he takes you out of the game and he puts you in a penalty box for a couple minutes. And it doesn't matter if the player says, yeah, I did it. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. You're still in the penalty box. You have to serve your time in the penalty box and then you get out. And that's how I thought about my relationship with God. That's how I thought about how the Christian life works. If I commit sin, God's going to blow the whistle and put me in the penalty box. And yes, he's going to forgive me because he's God. He kind of has to do that. But he's not going to want to be with me. And he's certainly not going to want me to be in the game on the court for a while. He's going to want me over there at arm's length serving my time in the penalty box till I've worked off that foul and now I can get back in. So that is how I imagined forgiveness and restoration working. But it's interesting to look back at Psalm 32 again and, and think about exactly what David is saying here. If you notice verse 1, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. It doesn't say how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and who has spent all of his time in the penalty box. It doesn't add anything like that. Like you, you have to be forgiven and do your time. No, it's just forgiveness. And 1 John 1, 9 is clear. The moment you confess your sin, God instantly forgives you. He instantly cleanses you. There is no penalty box in the Christian life. Now, now we have to be clear. When, when a believer commits a, a really big sin, especially a public sin, that believer may need to be out of public ministry for a little while. While he or she heals and grows and recovers uh, and, and rebuilds trust with the community. But that doesn't mean that they're in the penalty box. The moment a believer confesses sin to God, 
God immediately forgives, immediately cleanses, opens his arm and welcomes them back and begins to use them. It may be in a different way, but still using them. And so we must understand in Christianity, there's no penalty box. God is not a referee. When you confess your sins, he instantly cleanses you. He welcomes you back into his presence, into his blessing, and he immediately begins to use you again in the community to serve and love others. There's no penalty box in the Christian life. That was a huge thing for me to come to understand in my life, really change the way that I interact with God to understand confession and forgiveness brings immediate cleansing. Doesn't put me in the penalty box. That really changed my view of him. So when we think about the life that we're living, David would want us to understand the ideal life is just don't sin. So please, don't sin. That's the best idea to get to blessing. But you are going to sin because you're still a sinner. When you do, you fall off that path of blessing, but there's a way back. If you'll choose not to hide it, which would just bring sorrow, don't deny it, don't excuse it, that would just bring sorrow. When you decide instead, I'm going to confess it to God. I'm going to acknowledge to God, I've done this. It's serious. It's not okay. I regret it. Please forgive me. That confession leads you on a path of of forgiveness and restoration that, that restores you. You're back on the path. That's what God does. He loves to get us back on the path. He doesn't put us in a waiting box for a while. He takes us right back onto the path. And so I I want us to apply that this morning. So we're going to do a couple things. Um, I'm going to give you some time to go before the Lord in confession and talk this through with God. And then we're going to finish in worship by actually doing exactly what David wants us to do here, which is to give thanks for the freeness of God's forgiveness. So before we respond in worship, let's just go before the Lord a little bit in confession I thought for a while about like, how do I put this application together? Do I need to have like some application for those who need to confess, some application for those who don't need to confess? And then I realized, no, I think we all need to confess. (laughs) I think ultimately we're all falling short. And so what I want you to do, I'm going to give you some time here in a moment where you can just close your eyes and I'm not going to talk. You can just go before the Lord. Um, And what I want you to do is I want you to take stock of your life. And I want you to to go before the Lord honestly and ask yourself, where have you fallen short? Where have you been allowing sin into your life? And at first, no ideas may come to you. You may think, oh, there's nothing sinful that I know of that I've been doing that I haven't confessed, nothing evil. If that's the case, then just flip the question, what are the good things you haven't been doing? That'll get all of us, okay? So (laughs) sins of commission, sins of omission. I want us to just go before the Lord honestly and say, Lord, what what is a path you've called me to and where have I fallen short? Either by doing something wrong or saying something wrong or not doing or not saying something good that I know that I should have. I want you to honestly go before the Lord and just lay that out to him. I want you to confess that to him. And for some of you, that may be a really big deal because maybe there's some area of life that you know God hasn't been pleased with, but you've been excusing. Or, or denying it, or, or hiding it, pretending it's not there. You don't want to deal with it. This is your moment to go before the Lord and say, God, I, I'm willing to acknowledge if I keep doing this, if I keep denying it, if I keep excusing it, it's just going to hurt me and everyone I care about. So God, here it is. I know it's wrong. And it's okay if you tell them, I don't know how to give it up. I, I don't know how to stop doing it. But I admit it's wrong. I admit it's serious. I admit that, that I need your forgiveness. Please, God, cleanse me and help me 
to turn away from this. Just go before the Lord and be honest about that. So let's spend a couple minutes in confession before God. Then I'll close us in prayer and then we'll respond in worship. Lord God, I lift up everyone in here. I pray for those who have been clinging to some sin in their lives, whether it's a a sin that they're committing or something good that they're omitting from their lives. I, I pray, God, that you would do whatever it takes to help them to confess that to you. I pray, Lord, that even if it involves breaking and humbling, I, I pray that you would do whatever it takes for them to acknowledge their sin, to lay it at your feet, to be restored to you. I pray for those, Lord, who have confessed their sin but just feel crushed by it feel like they deserve to be in the penalty box for days, for weeks, for months. I pray, God, that they would see you differently, not as a hockey referee, but as a loving father who, like the father of the prodigal son, runs to him, welcomes him back with open arms. I pray, God, that we would see you that way, that we would understand the freeness of your forgiveness, that we would walk in your grace. I pray, God, that we would celebrate your forgiveness. I pray, that by experiencing the freeness of your forgiveness, we would become witnesses of that, that we would tell others about that, that people would be attracted to you through the peace and joy and forgiveness that we experience. Lord, we thank you that you're the kind of God who forgives even when it's seven times, 70 times that we have sinned. You continue to forgive. You don't give up on us. Thank you so much. You're a better dad than any of us would be. We thank you for your forgiveness. We pray that we would walk in it. We pray that when we sin, we would be quick to confess. And that you would restore us to your path of blessing. That we might walk in your peace and joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Now if you'll stand, let's respond to God in thanksgiving.